0: So much has been made about different groups feeling the burden of student debt in different ways, but there's an underreported group that is suffering from this student debt crisis. As Stephen Deller and Alec Rhodes lay out, America's continuing urbanization means rural students are getting crushed by student debt in ways researchers had never even realized. Though the pandemic has accelerated this problem, the roots of rural student debt extend back decades and present challenging problems to solve in the coming years. That and more next on the Consortium for Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast. Welcome to the CIPRI Research Minutes podcast. I'm Luke Sego, and I'm joined by Stephen Deller, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Agricultural and Applied Economics, and Alec Rhodes, a PhD student at uh, Ohio State University studying sociology, to discuss rurality and student debt as part of our continuing series on student debt in the United States. Thanks so much to the both of you for joining us, but let's get into it. One area often under-discussed is uh, the rural and urban divide in student debt. And Alec, your paper looks to answer why students in rural communities end up with higher debt than their urban and suburban counterparts. For example, students in rural areas accumulate about 60% more debt than people in other locales. So Alec, can you give us some background on what this divide looks like and why that is the case?
1: Yeah. Um, so first, thanks so much for having me uh, here to talk about this very important topic. Uh, and I'm glad to be on here uh, with Stephen. And so uh, young adults from rural backgrounds have been making great strides in both college uh, enrollment and also completion, but we know uh, very little about how rural youth are financing these higher education gains. So this is an important uh, area of inquiry because of the high price of college and also long lasting spatial inequalities between uh, populations in rural uh, and urban and suburban areas. And of course, also rising student debt. Uh, which often fills the gap between stagnating family incomes and the rising costs of college or working and middle-class families. Uh, and so taken together, uh, these trends have important implications for geographical inequalities. And so my paper asked whether rural college goers accumulate more debt than their non-rural counterparts from suburban and urban areas. And if so, what explains these disparities? What are the social processes generating them? Uh, and so to do so, I use nationally representative survey data on young adults born between 1980 and 1984 who enrolled in college by age 25. And I look at debt at age 25 uh, because my f- the focus of my study is really on how or on the extent of geographical inequalities and in student debt accumulation. So I'm looking at debt kind of around the period in the life course that a normative four-year college goer or a two-year college goer would usually be uh, sort of expected to have completed their undergraduate schooling, but not necessarily have uh, paid much of the the, the balance back. And so in terms of the main findings, after adjusting for sociodemographic differences, yeah, I estimate, as you said, uh, that college goers from rural backgrounds accumulate about 60% more student debt Uh, than those from both suburban and urban backgrounds. And so to provide kind of some context for this disparity, it's larger than the difference between women and men, uh, with women tending to on average accumulate more student debt uh, than men who go to college. And it's about as quarter as large as the black-white student debt gap, which we know is quite large. And then finally, uh, the study also investigated the possible uh, social explanation for these geographic disparities in student debt. Um, And I found that rural college goers, their higher debt could be partially explained by uh, the lower socioeconomic status of their parents, uh, who tend to have lower incomes and wealth than their counterparts from suburban and urban areas, uh, which uh, is is partly reflecting uh, the, the geographical constraints on economic opportunities between rural and suburban and urban places. And another important factor that I investigated was the role of migration during college, Um, And so we know that rural college goers face uh, geographic isolation from a lot of colleges and universities. And I find that differences in between county migration during college, which entail costs, uh, including transportation, housing, and other kind of indirect costs of college associated with migration. I found that differences in migration also play an important role. And then I guess just in conclusion, I'm only able to account for about a third of of the observed disparities uh, between rural and non-rural college goers. So there are definitely other factors that are that are at play here. So this is again a, a great area for further research.
0: And I want to zero in on one of the disparities you brought up uh, in your answer. Is that the difference between women and men is significant across all localities, but This becomes even more significant in rural communities, that women often carry the highest debt burden in rural communities. Can you talk about that and sort of the job opportunities that present themselves to women in rural communities and how the student debt situation factors into all that?
1: Yeah, so the two uh, kind of most common source of decent paying jobs in rural communities today are in, uh, first of all, the care economy, which would include jobs in education, healthcare, and local government and also jobs in manufacturing and natural resource-based industries. And so one thing this occupational structure kind of creates are uh, gendered trade-offs that differentially influence the higher education trajectories of young women and young men from rural areas. And so the fact is that the best-paying jobs that don't require a college degree are often male-dominated in rural, but also in other communities in the United States, but You know, I argue that this is particularly pronounced in rural areas. Um, And so rural women, uh, uh, young women face more pressure to take on debt to enroll in college. And so I find evidence of this gendered pressure. So like we said, while both rural women and men tend to have more student debt than their same gender counterparts from non-rural backgrounds, the sort of combined influence of gender and geography contributes to especially high debt levels among rural women. And this finding is important because while women tend to earn a higher relative college wage premium than men, uh, the lower wages in rural areas combined with persistent gender gaps in pay uh, may create double disadvantages for rural women as they enter student debt repayment. And this also raises, uh, I think, important questions for future research, including on how the impacts of student debt vary by both gender uh, and rurality. Uh, so for example, Concerns over student debt may uh, deter rural youth from enrolling in college in the first place. And so based on what we know about the gendered occupational landscape of rural and other communities in the United States, we might sort of think that rising student debt can actually play a role in the stagnating levels of college enrollment, especially among rural men in recent decades. So more research is needed here as
0: well. And Stephen, we want to loop you in as well, but Alec, you know, if, if you have any expertise on the following question, obviously we'd love to hear from you. One thing we know for sure is that universities are primarily concentrated around metropolitan areas. And at the same time, we often see how high student debt burdens, I should say, pushes people to relocate to urban centers based on the perceived or actual economic opportunities available to them. Does this lead to the rural brain drain? And how do we how can we assess these impacts and what do we know about these impacts?
2: One of the things before we get much farther is that we have to have kind of a a, a better understanding of what we mean by urban and rural. There's a spectrum here when you talk about urban and rural. And when you kind of fine tune what we're talking about rural, you can get a very, very different story about the role of student debt here. For example, you could have a rural community that is within commuting distance of a metropolitan area. And that complicates the analysis as opposed to a rural community that is say outside of a labor shed for a metropolitan area so one of the things that i think we need to kind of think about a little bit more deeply is what do we mean by rural because it's going to influence it particularly when you start talking about uh, labor markets and things like that so in terms of a rural brain drain i think if you're talking about a remote rural area there could be a drive to rural brain drain young adults really don't see economic opportunities in these remote rural areas. They see college as a mechanism to advance themselves. And that does result in a rural brain drain. But if you're talking about a rural area that is within say a commuting distance to a metropolitan area, you may have a very different phenomenon going on. And the brain drain may actually be in reverse because what what we're seeing is actually an expanding out of these labor market sheds or commuting sheds, if you will, where you may actually see some rural areas benefiting and getting a brain gain because of the unique opportunities these rural communities provide given their relative proximity to a metropolitan area or to an urban area. So we need to think about this a little bit differently. If we're talking remote rural, yeah, there probably is a brain drain, But if we're talking a rural area that's closer to an urban
0: area, uh, particularly a growing urban area, there could actually be a brain gain. And that's an interesting distinction you bring up and one that I think has impacts on another area that you addressed in your paper, and that's the impact of student debt on rental markets and home ownership. Can you discuss the links between those concepts? Well, there's kind of a
2: broader impact here, regardless of whether we're talking rural, remote, rural, urban, is that students that have particularly high levels of student debt are kind of excluded from the from the purchase market, the, the home ownership market. They simply cannot get the financing for a mortgage, so they're kind of pushed into the rental markets. And because we're seeing so many young adults and middle-aged adults with high levels of debt, student debt they're pushed into the rental markets and that creates pressures on those rental markets indeed if you look at uh, the current levels of housing fiscal stress in rural areas defined as spending more than 35 percent of your income on on housing the stress is really in the rental markets and we're seeing that increasing over time there's two reasons for that one is people being pushed into the rental markets, driving up demand that drives up rental prices. And the second is kind of a, a lack of adequate supply within the rental markets. So there's kind of a two-pronged thing here that's creating a lot of stress in rural housing markets. Uh, the other thing too is we're seeing that the commuting shed again is getting larger and larger spatially. People are willing to commute greater distance. And one of the major driving factors behind that is housing prices. Uh, If you look at the housing prices, particularly now, uh, within some of these urban markets, they're becoming prohibitively expensive. Young people, whether they have student debt or not, are being excluded from the housing market. So what a lot of folks are doing is they're deciding, well, I'm going to make a trade-off here. I'm I'm going to trade off commuting time for uh, lower rental prices, lower housing prices in these rural markets. So what they're doing is they're moving into these these rural communities and they're commuting into work. That's creating stress, that's both an opportunity uh, because it's a form of brain gain for these rural communities but it's also creating stress on those housing markets. So a lot of it really does kind of depend on this
0: spatial proximity here. And Alec, what did you find about this in your research for your paper? Did these trends persist in your research or was there sort of a divergence in what you found?
1: Yeah, so I kind of looked at it from uh, the kind of opposite side of the relationship. So I think what uh, Stephen spoke about really gets at what I think uh, a major, one of the major concerns here is, right, how student debt is impacting uh, the flow of of young adults and middle-aged adults from rural to urban areas. I think there's also maybe another concern too, which is kind of looking at the opposite relationship, opposite side of the relationship rather, which is that that migration, right, can also be associated with more student debt, right? And so uh, my analysis was kind of focused more on how uh, migration um, uh, uh, during college specifically um, uh, could be associated with student debt. And so uh, sociologists have long sort of documented the unique role that migration plays in facilitating you know the occupational and educational goals of rural youth, and so in this way, right, differential migration uh, may be um, also contributing to geographic inequalities in student debt. Um, and so the basic kind of point here is that uh, student debt can be kind of both a cause and consequence of rural to urban migration. Uh, and so this is a promising area for future research. If I
2: can follow up on Alex's point, this is really kind of an interesting question because when we went into the research, we weren't sure. Are folks with high levels of student debt going to be drawn to rural areas because of lower cost of living? Or are they gonna be pulled into urban areas because of higher economic opportunities? And as we dug into the data, this is where we found this kind of spectrum across different types of rural really matters. And again, back to this kind of remote rural, yeah, you're gonna get brain drained because folks are going to move into those urban centers or closer to those urban centers. If you're rural, close to an urban center, you're in a position to benefit. The other thing that's going to be complicating this a lot is uh, the changes pattern, patterns that we're seeing in telecommuting. Uh, the one thing that has come out of the COVID um, economy is that if there is a structural shift to the economy, is going to be around telecommuting, and the growing number of businesses that have embraced telecommuting as a way to reduce their real estate cost. This is going to add a wrinkle into this discussion uh, that we're not really sure how that's gonna play out in
0: the coming years. So small and local businesses are huge economic generators. They're often called the backbone of the economy. They produce jobs, they generate tax revenue and so on. Uh, Steven, your paper points out that student debt can reduce new business formation overall. Can you talk about how you found that out, what research you did and what the relationship can be between entrepreneurship and student debt?
2: yes i think one thing that we have to be clear about here is what are we talking about when we talk about entrepreneurship and new business formation there's really kind of two ways that you can categorize uh, new business formation one is it influences the data that you use to do the analysis there's one way to thinking about it is in terms of what's called the employer data set the employer-based business data set and the, the non-employer-based business data sets but what this basically means is that if you start a new business, are you basically self-employed and you're the only person in that business? If that's the case, then you're in the, the non-employer data set or way of thinking about the businesses. The other is that I start a business and I start hiring people right away. That's another type of business. We were very interested in that second group. The group that are starting up and they start hiring. I mean, as soon as they start up, they're hiring people, okay? They could be one person, could be two people, could be 10 people. Those are the businesses that we looked at. And the reason that we're interested in those businesses is twofold. One, the research suggested that these tend to have a bigger impact on local communities in rural communities. They also tend to be a bit more sustainable. They have a little bit higher business survival rates because they need financing in order to do this. And the financing generally comes from uh, family, friends, and fools, but also the banks. And the banks are reluctant to put their money into businesses that they don't think have a chance to operate or to function. So we're kind of looking at the higher end there. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have students or, or, or adults with student debt that are setting up side businesses do the kind of the gig economy, if you will, depending on how they report that income for tax purposes, they could be entrepreneurs. So you could get actually a, a situation where, you know, people with a lot of student debt are not able to kind of start that employer business because they can't get the financing because the student debt is holding them back. But you could see these same people actually starting side businesses because they're trying to generate additional income. So depending on how you wanna think about a new business, you can get polar opposite results. In our particular work, we were looking at those businesses that have at least one employer employee above and beyond the owner of the business.
0: And I want to get into another sort of knock on effect of student debt, and that's health. Uh, A community is only as healthy as its people, and a nation is only as healthy as its people. And Stephen, your paper looks at student debt effects on community health outcomes. Can you tell us more about what you found in regards to that? You know, whether it be increased rates of smoking or lack of sleep or, you know, anything else that has really become apparent in your research?
2: Yes, higher levels of student debt tends to result in poor health outcomes. And the thread that ties that together is stress. And this could be student debt. This could be any type of debt. The higher levels of debt that you have relative to your income, you're under more stress, whether it's your mortgage, whether it's a a rent payment, or it's making your student debt payments, if you're under stress right? That's a mental health issue. And that can lead to difficult times sleeping. It can lead to uh, increased rates of smoking. It can also lead to increased rates of um, excessive drinking, because you're trying to deal with the stress. That stress then spills over into your overall health and well-being. And that can affect labor productivity labor productivity, whether or not you're working for somebody else or whether or not you're you're running your own business. So as labor productivity starts to
0: decline, it really kind of is a, a negative draw on the economy. And that health has obviously economic implications, but it also has social implications. And, and human capital is really something that gets impacted by student debt and all these other stressors that impact us in various ways. You know, The lifeblood of any given community is human capital. Throughout American history, communities were built around voluntary service. You have your volunteer firefighters, your EMTs, your PTAs, your charitable donations, your you know even donations done outside the realm of a normal charity. Human capital has provided the backbone for a lot of what makes America uh, what it is. Can either of you talk about the importance of human capital in a community and what do we know about the effects of student debt on the ability for individuals to contribute their human capital to local communities?
2: There is a series of studies that are coming out of Iowa State
0: University.
2: It's called the Iowa Small Town Project. And they're looking at Iowa communities, rural communities, populations between 5,000 and 10,000. And they're finding that there are some communities that are really kind of struggling and some communities that are doing pretty well, thank you very much. And what they're finding is the exact same thing that we're finding in our work in Wisconsin, and it's the role of social capital. People sometimes think about it in terms of human capital, education, skills, uh, training, things like that. That's important. But this notion of social capital, which is kind of the the networks, the sense of belonging, the 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 involvement, the levels of volunteerism, the level of, of getting involved in local government, uh, school boards, things like that. That's the lifeblood of a lot of these rural communities. Now here, student debt can kind of have a double-edged sword. On the one hand, there's a lot of research that suggests that folks that have higher education, a form of human capital, tend to invest more in their community through social capital by volunteering, leadership and things like that. Now, in a sense, having people incur debt to get higher education or additional training is good for the community because it will have that kind of indirect effect through volunteerism social ca- and, and social capital. On the flip side is that excessive student debt can actually lead to those mental health stress issues that we were talking about before that actually kind of discourages people's involvement. It's kind of a double-edged sword. There's also the issue from kind of a research perspective. One of the problems that we've got with a lot of the the research that we're doing here around student debt is is what we sometimes refer to as sample selection bias. People that are willing to go out and assume debt uh, to pay for higher education, they have certain innate traits that will exist whether they have higher education or don't have higher education. They have debt, they don't have debt. And they are more likely to be actively involved in their their communities. That has a very strong impact on the well-being of rural communities and urban neighborhoods as well.
0: So research tells us that student debt channels students into business degrees or other high grossing careers due to the high cost of education. You, know, you want to get some sort of return on your investment. But the pandemic has made us realize that we need more healthcare professionals. We need more teachers. We need more you know, people serving in positions like that. These professions suffered from shortages before the pandemic. And now, as we all see, they are getting much worse. Can either of you talk about the role that student debt plays in all of this uh, sort of navigation of different career choices and what solutions might be able to counter this? Uh, Do you think debt cancellation, for example, is part of this?
1: Yeah, I think that there are two general areas of concern here. And I think some of Stephen's work has uh, touched on this as well. And so I think the first concern um, is that student debt will channel uh, college goers into higher, uh, higher-paying professions, right, and kind of it will um, cause them to uh, avoid uh, the more moderate-paying kind of public service profes- professions. And then another uh, concern is also that student debt will sort of incentivize college goers to take more low, in- low-paying jobs right out of college because they feel pressure um, to actually begin to start paying back their student debt. And so I think one problem here. In terms of actually like in, inferring causes of, of student debt in terms of occupational choices, right is that there's a lot of uh, heterogeneity across the college population in terms of uh, what type of degrees people get, whether or not they complete school, uh, I complete a degree, I should say. So that kind of brings in some complications here, but it definitely um, does raise concerns about uh, the different occupational outcomes that can sort of be associated with student debt holding. I think
2: that Alex makes a very good point there on completion of the degree. One of the worst situations that a student can find themselves is a student that's say a first generation student, that's the first person in that family to, to go on for higher education with low income, which means that they don't really have the resources, they have to finance it through debt, and then they don't complete the degree those students are in a very, very difficult position. They're kind of at the the worst end of the spectrum. Now that feeds into my comment, is that a lot of times we treat student debt as kind of this homogeneous phenomenon. And there's a real spectrum here across students and and young adults and and even middle-aged adults that go on, decide to go back to college. In terms of the situation that they're coming from and the occupations that they go into. For example, a first generation student from a low income family who takes on significant debt uh, to become a nurse's aide is fundamentally different than someone who has a bachelor's degree in business, decides they're going to take a year off, they're going to take on debt to get an MBA. Those are very, very, very different students, but on face value, they both have the same level of debt. And that MBA student that uh, has a, a professional career behind them, they're moving up the business corporate ladder. They're very different than those lower occupation, first generation, low income students. Now, when we talk about debt alleviation policies, I think that we need to be very careful in terms of, you know, is it Should we, as a society, be helping that first-generation low-income student who goes into a low-paying occupation? Should they be treated differently than, say, that middle-aged adult who took a year off to get an MBA and is moving up the corporate ladder? Should they be treated differently? I think you could make an argument that perhaps they should, but we need to be careful in terms of recognizing the the severe heterogeneity across the spectrum here in terms of student debt?
1: Yeah, just to, just to respond to Susan's comment, I think that's a great point. And um, I, think, I think two things here. So the first is that, uh, yes, there's a lot of heterogeneity um, in terms of the population with student debt. Um, and we want to be careful about how we treat the problem in terms of you know the way that we deal with student debt to be impacting those who are uh, kind of the populations that are most in need versus those who are relatively privileged, right? So this idea of uh, student debt cancellation being progressive or regressive, as some people uh, try to uh, characterize any such plan as necessarily just like essentially regressive or progressive. But um, I think this gets to the point of we need to be thinking about sort of like how much exactly, right? If we were to pursue a kind of cancellation approach to dealing with the student debt problem, it gets at the point of there's an interesting um, question about how much really should be canceled. I completely agree that we need to be careful about how we uh, think about uh, approaching uh, a cancellation approach to student debt. But at the same time, I do think that canceling even a small amount of student debt, right, would have big impacts for the populations who are most at need. Um, And this gets at the point that uh, a lot of those with with a very high balance of student debt, right, are relatively privileged populations who maybe go on to pursue graduate school and and get these kind of uh, highly professionalized degrees. But in my case, in in the data that I've looked at, um, if you just cancel even $50,000 in student debt, um, this would wipe out student debt for about 90% of rural college goers. And among those people who would actually have all of their debts wiped out, about 90% of them come from families who are earning uh, less than $100,000 a year in terms of their family background, right? So this would be primarily aiding uh, students who come from working and middle-class backgrounds. Um, so I agree with the point to, to be, um, we need to be sophisticated in terms of how we're approaching debt cancellation policies. But I also think this policy could be more progressive than I think uh, some people uh, characterize it as. I think
2: Alex makes an excellent point here, is that a lot of the policy discussions around student debt that's been occurring at the federal level over the past year or so has been kind of black and white, all or nothing. And I think what Alex lays out here in terms of like, we're going to forgive up to a certain amount. And then if you're in above that, you're on your own. Those are the kind of policy discussions that we should be talking about rather than this kind of black and white, all or nothing. I think there's also the opportunity to change policy to allow students to perhaps refinance their loans to get lower interest rates right now that's off the table. So there's there's a lot of kind of smaller steps that we could take to really kind of take a lot of the pressure off.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think this is really like quite a rich area in terms of getting into what, you know, potential policy solutions could be. So I think another major, like states actually play a, they could play a, a significant role here. Um, so in, in some states, in addition to the federal government, right? So some states have actually created Borrowers' bills of rights that sort of regulate student loan servicers, and they create these ombuds persons to oversee student loan issues. Um, and then other states have sort of tried to provide uh, tax credits to certain populations of borrowers, um, and also to employers who repay some of their employees' student loans. Um, also, states I think can use their kind of bureaucratic uh, capacities to intervene when debtors are struggling. So, for example, research by Cornell sociologist Elizabeth Martin and Ohio State sociologist Rachel Dwyer finds that student debtors are are more likely than those without student debt to experience financial stress during economic downturns. And I think what that tells us is that states could actually use some of their bureaucratic capacities, sort of institute automatic stabilizers that might, for example, pause payments and interests when student debtors start drawing on unemployment systems. So some of this could be kind of a dynamic cooperation between federal and state governments uh, to sort of provide more uh, help for struggling borrowers. And I think at the federal level, uh, what Stephen said about refinancing, I completely agree. And another promising policy solution is to look to other countries um, and how they sort of administer student loans. And so, for example, Australia automatically enrolls uh, student debtors in income contingent repayment plans. Uh, So rather than in the U.S. case, uh, we require uh, student debtors to opt into these programs, Australia and other countries actually automatically enroll uh, student borrowers in income-contingent repayment plans. Uh, The other thing that is a hugely important thing to address on the repayment side is the fact that in the U.S., student debtors have to annually recertify their participation in the income-based repayment plans. Um, and so this can this can really uh, create a lot of bureaucratic hurdles, especially for the populations who are most in need of student loan protections, you know, when they're struggling to to make payments. And then lastly, while I think the the focus on uh, repayment and student debt cancellation is is sorely needed because this is such an important social problem and it contributes to inequalities in important ways, I also think um, it somewhat deflects from, the actual root cause of this um, that I think the concern over student loans might be sort of a symptom of, uh, which is the incredibly high cost of college in the United States. The price of college has risen faster than inflation for decades now. And this is especially, it's not just limited to, you know, extremely expensive private schools. It's actually uh, mostly being driven by increases uh, in public universities. This reflects kind of tightening austerity kind of state budgets uh, for public higher education institutions. Um, And it's just the fact that young adults in other nations, you know, including Canada, just pay far less for higher education. And so, again, I think that uh, additional focus needs to be on sort of the root cause of the problem, which is the high cost of college. And I think that can be addressed by sort of a, a, um, a reinvestment in a public goods program that really... Uh, involves sort of increased investment in our public uh, higher education institutions.
2: I think Alex just called out the, the elephant in the room here because if you track student debt over time and you look at public commitment to higher education, particularly uh, state government investment in public edu- or higher education, public higher education, there's almost a perfect parallel between the two of them. And I think that that's an important question looking forward, but one thing that we need to be careful about here is looking at policies that are kind of backwards looking in terms of how do we alleviate a lot of those, the stress that's occurring right now? How do we deal with students that have accumulated massive levels of debt and it's having a drag on the economy? That's backwards looking. We need to be careful in terms of policies looking forward, because if we do a debt relief program looking backwards, is there an implicit implication that there will be debt relief moving into the future? If that's a possibility, you can get people that are essentially saying, hey, I could take out large student loans and pay for it, and the likelihood of those loans being forgiven is sufficiently high, I'm willing to take the risk. So you end up with kind of a, a distortion or a perversion in the markets here because people think, you know, hey, this isn't a loan. This is basically going to be a grant uh, and they're going to give me this money. So we've got to be really careful about looking backwards and providing debt relief if we want to do that and policies moving forward. But I think, again, Alex called out the elephant in the room is college education, particularly in our public universities has just accelerated to um, an almost unacceptable level. We need to
0: rethink our public commitment to higher education. And that's a really interesting point that you both really harped on, the rise in college costs and one that we address. If you're interested in it, we highly encourage you to check out our CIPRI Research Minute podcast with Dalia Jimenez and Jonathan Glader on their paper, student debt is a civil rights issue coming out as part of the student debt series, they also touch upon the income-driven repayment plan and really echo a lot of the things both of you just brought up. And on the point that you made about uh, differentiating between types of student debt, you know, federal versus student debt, the Learning Policy Institute has found that state programs were generally effective in recruiting and retaining high-quality teachers in underserved areas. Minnesota has programs for you know, nurses and dentists and physicians. Mississippi has programs for graduates who work as teachers. So there are certain states that are working towards helping debtors who are working towards the public good. And that gets me into a prospective look at where where do we go from here? What comes next? And we touched on this a little bit already. Higher education, education in general, is discussed, like both of you did, as a private good, like one individual getting a good job. But we know that education can be and is and should be more than that. Can both of you give us uh, your thoughts on how we should view education and the role higher education should play in a society like the United States?
2: How much time do you have?
0: We're here all day.
2: (laughs) I think one of the common themes that that both Alex and I have been talking about is that there is what an economist would call uh, high levels of positive externalities associated with higher education. We can go back to what we were talking about um, in terms of like social capital and the involvement of people within their communities uh, volunteerism, uh, standing up for elected office and assuming informal leadership roles. The research is clear. People that have gone on for higher education kind of have those traits, if you will, to do that and higher education just better positions them to be able to do that. So having a community with more folks that have had higher education, that have been exposed to higher education, not only does that improved the, the labor force, that's that private good element that you're talking about, Luke, but it also improves the social capital and the political capital, of that particular community. It makes the community a better place to live. And one of the things that we're finding in a lot of the economic development work here is that historically, jobs follow people. So the implication from an economic development perspective is is that if, if people follow jobs, then you want to focus on creating employment opportunities, business opportunities, things like that, and then people will come into the community to take it. That relationship has changed. Increasingly, jobs follow people. Now, what that means from a, from a rural development perspective or even an urban development perspective is that you wanna focus on people. You wanna focus on creating a, a community that people want to live there. The youth that go off to college wanna come back because it's a high quality of life place. There's, there's a lot of social capital. There's a lot of community involvement. There's high rates of volunteerism. There's effective leadership that creates an environment that people want to move into and then businesses will follow after that, whether it's through entrepreneurship or just new market opportunities. So anything that we can do as a society to invest in higher education or even the opportunity for higher education has this positive spillover on communities, making them a better place to live, higher quality of life, which then will have a ripple effect and create more economic opportunities, economic growth, and economic development. The problem that we've got is that these are very long-term strategies. These are the types of things that can take years to play out. Unfortunately, a lot of our elected officials, particularly at the federal level and at the state level, they're looking at the immediate future. They're looking at getting reelected which means they're looking at a two-year cycle or or a four-year cycle, as opposed to, you know, this is going to have a payoff 10 years from now. So the problem is, is that we always are kind of looking at this immediate short-term flashy objects and rather than kind of thinking more sustainably longer term. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we're losing an investment in higher education is because that long-term payoff is being discounted more and more and more by our elected officials because they wanna get reelected. They need something now, they need something flashy. Things like tax cuts, thats short term, that's flashy, that draws attention. Investing in higher education that may not have a payoff for 10 years, they're not interested in that. And that's kind of the political environment that we're in right now.
1: Yeah, I think also, This kind of view of higher education as a public good or or as something that creates positive uh, externalities is absolutely crucial, especially for um, how we think about actually financing um, college, because right now there's such a focus on uh, education as a private good as something that leads to higher labor market uh, returns. Right. And so therefore policymakers in their short term interests can justify uh, the high cost of college and ballooning student debt on the basis of the fact that, uh, you know, this is supposedly a private investment that will reap private returns. And uh, as Stephen, as Stephen just discussed, you know, this really downplays the positive goods that spill over from the, uh, the individuals who actually go to college to their wider communities, right? And so it's just such an important thing for researchers and also for the wider public to understand that higher education is a public good and therefore it should be
0: uh, financed to a greater deal by the public in general. Stephen Deller is a professor in Agricultural and Applied Economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His paper with Jackson Parr, Indebted and Drained Student Loans in Rural America is available in the Agricultural and Applied Economics Association. Alec Rhodes is a PhD student of Sociology at Ohio State University. His paper Student Debt and Geographic Disadvantage, Disparities by Rural, Suburban, and Urban Background is available in the Rural Sociological Society. Thank you so much to the both of you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the Consortium for Policy Research and Education. Make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts to keep up with all of our content.